The Capital Weekly Podcast is supported by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. Hello, and welcome to a special episode of the Capital Weekly Podcast. Today's episode was recorded live Thursday, November 10th at Capital Weekly's postmortem of the 2022 election. Today's podcast, we're presenting our keynote discussion with Mike Madrid. Mike Madrid is a recognized expert on Latino voting trends, longtime GOP strategist, and co-founder of the Lincoln Project. He is interviewed today by John Howard of the Capital Weekly. We'll go ahead and get started in just one moment, but first, let's thank our underwriters and sponsors for this event. Support for Capital Weekly's postmortem of the 2022 election was provided by the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations, the Western States Petroleum Association, KP Public Affairs, Perry Communications, Capital Advocacy, Lucas Public Affairs, the Whiteman Group, and the California Professional Firefighters. Greetings, and welcome to the keynote event, keynote section of our conference today. I'm delighted to be able to introduce Mike Madrid, a veteran political strategist in California, former spokesperson for the state Democratic, uh, state Republican Party. When you were like 12 years old or 13 years old, I think you were a yeah. spokesperson. <laughs> Formerly with the Lincoln Project, we'll chat about that a little bit about that later. Um, Mike, thank you so much for being here. Thanks so much for having me, guys. Love what you guys are doing and love this event every year. So thank you for having me. Thank you. Um, so first off, I wanted to ask you about um, Latino voting patterns. I've seen over the last at least two or three months, uh, there's been a lot of, of uh, discussion about Latinos drifting away, going away from the Democratic Party that they had been affiliated with for years. Yeah. So one question I've got, is this happening in California? Or is this more of a Texas, Florida, Arizona kind of thing? Well, you know, the main thing to do, I think, here is to keep in perspective what's happening. Um, Latinos first time nationally in 2020, last election cycle, surpassed African-Americans as the second largest ethnic group. And in many ways, what has happened in 20, 2020 is pretty similar to what happened in California around 1996, 1998 right after Prop 187, we're starting to hit this exponential growth rate of the Latino vote. And you're gonna start seeing places that you wouldn't traditionally associate the Latino vote with uh, becoming more influential in the 270 map in the 2024 election cycle for president, but also in the battle for the Senate and the battle uh, for the House. So for example, Wisconsin has more Latino voters than black voters now. Uh, Pennsylvania has uh, four or 500,000 uh, Hispanic voters, most of them outside of Philadelphia, which were determinative in Fetterman's win in the early call that uh, Democrats enjoyed on Tuesday night there. Florida, of course, is a traditional one. North Carolina, much closer race than a lot of people were expecting for the Senate, driven in large part by this influx of about 70, 80,000 Hispanic voters in a state like North Carolina. That's quite significant. So we're starting to see now Latino voters making a difference in states that we don't historically uh, associate with Latino voters. And to your question directly, yes, there is undeniably, measurably, quantifiably, I know this is hard for Californians to understand, a rightward shift that is occurring uh, amongst Hispanic voters uh, outside of California. The question is, is it sustainable? Is it a short-term blip? Is it part of a realignment? Mm -hmm. Those are all very healthy, good questions. 
The unfortunate part is those are questions we really have not asked much in California because California is proving to be an exception, not the rule to the fastest changing demographic uh, transformation that we've seen in the, in the country's 250 year history. That of course has changed our politics. It's, it's been one of the main reasons we're a one party state. It's one of the main reasons why we are kind of, um, I think unable to address a lot of our, of our policy problems that affect um, middle class and upwardly mobile uh, class issues in California. And I think it's been to our detriment, but we're starting to see a, a really dramatic transformation largely outside of California. Well, one of the surveys uh, I saw, this was uh, mid-October, October 12th, I think, of several dozen Latino voters. And again, this is Florida, Texas, and Arizona. This is in the New York Times. And they asked them, what are the key issues for you? And in varying degrees, the response was inflation, housing, um, the partisan divide, the partisan dysfunction that we're seeing. Now that varied depending on responder. It was housing, inflation, inflation, housing, partisan divide, but they were all in the top. Immigration was not in the top three. It was an issue in discussion with people. Well, that struck me as the same as everybody else. So what is it that, say, Democrats can do to stop this flow? Is there anything they can do? Have, what have they done wrong in yeah. the past would be maybe a better yeah. I, what we're really learning really quickly is both parties don't get it. They don't understand what's happening. I would argue in California that's been the case with, with certainly with Republicans, obviously, but with Democrats too. It's just in California, it's manifested itself as a very low turnout. Uh, Latinos are really not engaged with the Democratic Party. They may be producing for Democrats in big numbers because they're very anti-Republican, but that's different than being pro, pro Democrat, the pro the pro Democratic Party. And I think we're, we're coming to understand that more now as the vote is moving significantly beyond California uh, for the past 25 or 30 years. So look, the, the real problem that Democrats have with Latino voters is the Democratic Party is not a middle class party anymore. And I know that shocks people because they're like, well, of course, we're the party of the working man. No, you're not. And that's not Mike Madrid saying that. That's working people, and that's Latino voters saying that who are walking with their feet and leaving the Democratic Party, which incidentally, I think is probably a better way to put it. It's not that re the Republicans are doing anything right. It's that Latinos are leaving the Democratic Party and Republicans are the beneficiaries, despite whatever efforts they may or may not be putting up. Okay. If, you, if you understand California's economic divide, Right, we are the wealthiest and poorest state in the nation. We have the rapid, the, the most rapidly shrinking middle class, driven largely by housing, um, but also the jobs that we're creating for non-college educated people are terrible, terrible jobs, and it really leaves people in poverty, not middle class, upwardly mobile jobs where people can, you know, provide a good quality of life for their families. And it's particularly pronounced in California. So the coalition in, uh, in the Democratic Party is wealthy white college educated people, which dominate the Democratic Party, and the, the poor non-college educated black and brown voter, which are increasingly leaving outside of California, but because they're poor, they stay more rigidly, solidly democratic when they vote, but we're voting at lower, lower rates so we've got a really big class problem in California, this income inequality divide that, that we call it, or this wealth separation gap is really making it impossible to have 
healthy, cohesive policy discussions in a state like California. And, and rather than moderating our policy positions to get to a better place, we keep this keep going onwards with this leftward drift that is really more anti-Republican, anti-right than it is uh, pro-Democrat, pro-progressive, pro-left. And, and that problem is economically driven. We're not talking about ethnicity, gender, uh, brown versus brown versus black versus yellow versus white. We're talking about a pocketbook, a basic pocketbook issue. Is that fair to say? Yeah, no, that's that's exactly the right way to look at it. Is and again, it, it really manifests our, our, itself in our politics. Is is California has a class problem? America has a class problem, but it's particularly pronounced. In California, the, the problem is there's direct racial correlations to our class problems. So what we do is yeah. oftentimes we try to address the race problem when it's really more often than not a class and an economic problem. And what that what that does is it gives California this false perception that it's actually addressing underlying racial tension and race issues when it's not addressing it at all. Right? We use these cultural issues as symbols for saying, oh, no, we're tolerant, we're California, we're moving a, in a different direction, right? We're doing something progressive here. When the reality is the economic problems are worse and getting getting worse rapidly, driven large part by policy decisions we're consciously making, right? And, and it's ironic because we're probably the most progressive state in the union, but there is no, there's no middle-class economic agenda. Like you don't hear that from the Democratic Party or the Republican Party. There's nobody who's trying to solve for that problem. And then we're kind of shocked that what we're manufacturing most in the state is poverty. What would a smart Republican strategist then or Republican Party official do to take advantage of a, you know, a, an unhappiness with the Democratic Party, especially among Latinos? Well, look, I, this is a great question. I've talked to my good friend Jim Brulte about this over the years. I've talked to a handful of Republican legislators that uh, still talk to me, which is, you know, it's a shrinking number, not just because the caucus is getting smaller, which it is, but those that want to hear about a different direction for the party, which even in California is remarkably small. The answer uh, is, is a little bit more complicated because Republicans have really been relying. You've, you've heard them being open about this as a strategy is, People are tired of the poverty. They're tired of the homelessness. They're tired of the housing and affordability. They're tired of gas prices. They're tired of whatever. They're tired of their tires. And at some point, the pendulum is going to swing back. That's not true. There, there's no law. Like, there's a law of gravity, right? There's a law of supply and demand. There's no law that says there has to be a two-party system. The pendulum does not have to swing back. And there's no sign that it's going to in California. And the reason is, is this, quite simply. The voters know that California has all of these problems. They're very conscious of it. But even then, they still won't vote for Republicans as a viable policy option because of, of frankly, of who they are and what we've been saying as a party for so long. And you're starting to hear this nationally. You even heard this on Fox News last night, is people are starting to say what I've been advising the party for 25, 30 years. It's you're going to have to adjust and make an adjustment that is not just tonal. It's it's got it has to be substantive, not just symbolic. And until that happens, even candidates that are anti-Trump or anti or pro-choice, like Lon He Chen, they're not viable candidates. Like you had, you, you had to really have blinders on and not understand the California electorate to think that even Lon He Chen had a chance. He doesn't, and and the reason is because. He should have been far more vocal, 
far earlier than he was in, in showing the contrast of what his candidacy represented to this really out of touch Republicanism that has been pulling down the party in California for 30 years and is now, as was evidenced by Tuesday's elections, sinking the party nationally. Well, if he's more vocal, Chen is a good example, but he and other candidates, is there any room for a moderate candidate of either party uh, to make, to have an image that can be, you know, translated into votes? It seems like there's more of a movement to the extreme. We always had those in both parties. There have been many examples of that, but it just seems now the most extreme voice gets the most attention and moderates are sort of dismissed. Well, there's no room in the Republican Party for moderates. I mean, we, we, we've learned that. If there's no interest, there's no desire uh, to have moderates. The Republican Party is very happy uh, with this kind of martyr complex of, of, of still pursuing these, these purity tests ideologically. That really started in the mid-90s when I was you know, with the party and working with the party. And if you haven't figured it out over 30 years, you're not going to figure it out. You're just going to kind of keep marginalizing yourself. And that's that's where Republicans find themselves in California. The Democratic Party is a little bit different. There's, there's a ton of room. There's a wide open, enormous lane for Democratic moderation. The problem is there is no political will to do it. And what I mean by that is this. A, a moderate Democrat in Sacramento is not what a moderate Democrat is outside of Sacramento, right? A mod dem in Sacramento means, oh yeah, I'm willing to, you know, I'll take a, a vote on oil or I'll take a vote for, you know, big, you know, whatever industry, you know, I need to take a dive for uh, to kind of, to make sure I raise some campaign cash there. That, that's, what a, that's what a Sacramento Democrat thinks a moderate is. The, the problem is, is the Democrat, the Democrat party has moved away, consciously away from working class voters who don't believe that Republicans are a viable alternative, they're starting to see lower and depressed turnout. So there are a ton of low and medium propensity Democrats that are completely disengaged from the current leftward drift of the Democratic Party that are simply not being communicated to. And all they're hearing is this, again, this, this, this California out of the mainstream uh, leftist you know, ideology, which is not, it's not, it's not that, it's not that voters um, are, are rejecting it. They're simply, they're, it's simply unrelatable. And, and that, that's what you're seeing with, with voters of color all across the country. I, one of the fascinating findings from last night is there's enough data to understand that the Democratic coalition, which by all estimates, you know, did quite well on Tuesday night, especially with, against historical trends, got whiter, W-H-I-T-E-R, not W-I-D-E-R, it got whiter, it got less ethnically and racially diverse. Hmm. Uh, some of the, the biggest Republican strongholds in New York City, where Republicans actually did quite well given this year, are, are Asian, overwhelmingly Asian constituencies. Black voters, the exit poll showed again after 2020, moving further to the right. Hispanics, you know, worst case or best case, depending on your party, either stayed at 2020 levels or became more Republican. So the, 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 the Democratic Party it really won Tuesday night in the same way Republicans won in 2016, which was overperforming with white voters. The, the Democratic Party is becoming less ethnically and racially diverse. And this shocks people, especially California. It's like, how is that possible? Like, you know, 
Uh, the answer is very simple: is they've got a class, they've got they've got a working class problem, and it's 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 a significant one. Um, and, and you're seeing that even in California, where races uh, like the California 13, uh, you know, Duarte versus Gray, those races where you were seeing. Uh, or the Central Valley, you know, the Valadeo race. Again, I think I think I think uh, Valadeo will probably be okay at the end of the day. I think Gray probably pulls it out at the end of the day. But those races shouldn't be that close. They just shouldn't be uh, for either party. Um, and the the reason is because of these class issues that both parties lack the ability or desire or political will to to, to communicate. You know, you mentioned uh, New York. Really interesting phenomena in New York, four congressional districts held by Democrats, no. flipped Republican, including the district of, uh, and I don't know New York politics that well, but Sean Maloney, I've heard of. Maloney. And he's a state political power in New York, lost his district. The districts have become more diverse than they were before. And there was a redistricting fight over this. But the bottom line is that one state, those four districts could be the difference in Republicans taking Congress or not. And it blindsided, blindsided the Democrats. What, how did that strike you? Can we see a similar phenomenon in California? Yeah, I mean, look, we're, we're, we're probably not gonna know the balance of power in the House of Representatives until California is done with its vote count. I mean, uh, but but it, it will be the height of irony if it's the two bluest states that will determine whether or not how well Republicans do in these states to actually win uh, control of Congress. And it gets even more peculiar is where you saw particularly strong Democratic turnout was in red states with abortion referendums on the ballot. Um, that's not California, right? So our, you know, turnout was high here. I don't know exactly how high. That's kind of a Paul Mitchell question or somebody else question. But what we saw in Long Island was four white uh, Democrats losing to Republicans Large, all on Long Island, by the way, largely as a function of, of crime and the crime issue. I, I wouldn't be surprised if you see a Mike Garcia perhaps hold on uh, in, in, a, in, a, in a district that he probably should would otherwise lose with these headwinds um, if they were concentrating and focusing on those issues. Um, and those are these are real issues. These are real concerns. Um, I, I think the bigger point, the, 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 the bigger question is, is what is the size of the majority that Republicans will have, uh, if they have one at all. And what does that mean for Kevin McCarthy, Californian, I think a friend of a lot of ours. Um, I think I think his possibility of becoming speaker has been dramatically reduced. I'm not, if, if, if his margin is less than 10, he, Kevin's in trouble, <laughs> but there's no other way to put it. I don't, I don't know who would want the job of being speaker. Of course, they all think they can do it. That's how politicians are. But the truth of the matter is, I mean, a Kevin McCarthy having a seven, eight, nine vote majority would be probably a nightmare. And it would probably be a very, very short lived nightmare because I don't think he could be speaker for more than a handful of months if that were the case. Do you think the crime issue uh, is coming back? This was the biggest issue in the 80s and 90s. Uh, prison yeah. expansion, you know, it's it obviously played in New York. People were yeah, look, and look, we talk about their fear of crime. So I'm wondering, is that a is that one way Republicans get back in the ball game? I don't. I don't let's not get crazy here. I mean, I, I think they'll overplay their hand as Republicans do because you have to remember most Republican consultants 
really don't have an understanding of any base voter beyond Republican voters anymore. Like there's a lost generation of Republican consultants who actually know how to win competitive races in California. But like it doesn't exist from 1998 until now, 25, 27 years, Republican win records. I mean, if you've won 20 percent of your races in the state legislature, I mean, you're, you're like a whiz kid. Like Republicans know how to win Republican primaries really well if you're going to be competitive, but none, very few of them actually understand how to talk to Latino voters. None, I would say. Democrats, extremely few. Independents, even they're not that good at it. So, so there's always a danger with Republican consultants not understanding how to speak to the openings that exist. And then, and to your to your to your question directly. Yes, there is an enormous opening, again, for moderate Democrats to recast the imagery on this, right? The whole defund the police and the cash bail issue was a huge, huge overreach that, that created a massive problem for Democrats. It's why you had the president of the United States going out and basically saying, I'm not for defunding the police in the State of the Union. Like, that's how big the problem is with this leftward drift of the Democratic Party. And that was why uh, Maloney lost, by the way. Maloney had come out and said um, that, you know, he opposed uh, 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 cash bail. And so he, he was just pounded on that. Okay. And, 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 and that, that was what, what undid him. That, that, there was a commercial that was just run on overdrive. And that, that brought down every other Democrat in, in the Long Island market. Now, the crime issue is really important, and I'll wrap up on this. It, it is the one issue that genuinely does swing back and forth, right? Taxes, immigration, abortion, like we don't see wide movement on these issues. On crime, you do. And it's usually decade by decade. And what has happened is a dramatic overreach by Democrats on these reforms, the defund the police, let's get rid of bail. Like that is not where the vast majority of voters are at. It's not where the vast majority of Californians are at. And Democrats can absolutely lose to these candidates. So um, yeah, I think Democrats are doing themselves an incredible disservice by not being on the side of law enforcement if they wanna keep this large coalition together uh, it may work in Sacramento, but it does not play outside of that Capitol building or anywhere else in the country for that matter, especially in communities of color, especially with Latino voters, African-American voters. This is really, really bad policy that's just out of step with the average Democrat. Okay. Mike, let me switch gears for a second and ask you about uh, the Lincoln Project, which I basically sort of forgot about. And then I saw what I think is just a great documentary. Uh, multi-part documentary on the Lincoln Project, in which you figure prominently, as do others. Uh, where are where is the Lincoln Project now? Is it still around? And if so, what's it doing? I'm not too sure. I mean, I, they are. I, I believe they are. There's a handful of them that are still involved with the effort. Um, I left shortly after the 2020 election cycle. It's all in the movie. If you want to watch it, don't want to get into the details of it. it I think hey, I really liked it. I have to tell you, I really liked it. And one thing that that struck me was how do you guys let all these cameras with each and every one of you? It seemed like they followed you for a month. You, other uh, Ripple, Schmidt, other people yeah. were, wow, you know, it's how do you work with all these cameras around? <laughs> yeah, look, I, I, I do think that the, the movie was pretty, quite well done. It, it's, it's the first time since the war room that cameras are actually inside the guts of a campaign watching it 
uh, in verite, as it's called, as I've learned in the movie industry, which means it's happening in real time. Most documentaries are retrospective. They go back, they pull footage, they interview people, and they tell story of what happened. This documentary was happening in real time at the most critical part of the campaign. It's when Ruth Bader Ginsburg dies, when, when Donald Trump gets COVID. They go through the ad making process. They go through the data and the strategy team that I was leading. When we were making decisions to go into Georgia late, why I was making the calls to go into Arizona, you know, why Rick and 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 Steve and others were were developing the imagery that they were and the narratives for those ads. So I think for people that love politics, it's the first time, like I said, since the war, and then actually we actually allowed cameras in there. Uh, I will tell you, it's a very odd sensation to literally wake up in the morning and there's cameras outside your bedroom door, because that's the way it is, and following virtually everything that you do uh, until the end of the night. I, there's just there's there's hundreds and hundreds of hours of footage. Um, it's not normal in a campaign to have everything documented. And, and uh, it, I, I think it did change. Uh, the way you, we approached and communicated on the campaign, but I, I think it will probably be an important piece uh, for people studying what I think the 2020 campaign will be a, a historic presidential campaign because of the, con the, the, the stakes were so yeah. high, um, but also because you, you will never allow, no campaign will ever allow cameras uh, that far deep behind the scenes uh, in a candidate campaign. You would never allow that. And, and I think this is one unique moment in time where that decision was made. And I'm glad it's over. It's glad it's behind me. As you know, I'm still working on pro-democracy efforts in Ukraine and Brazil and, and globally. I'm not as focused as much on, on the Republican versus Democrat fight. Um, but, but, you know, I think everybody from the Lincoln Project, all eight or seven at least anyway, George, George Conway, too, who's become a, a good friend, is, is not a political consultant. He's a lawyer. Um, but everybody, but he's very involved with the legal issues surrounding um, the Trump you know, case and cases. We've just all moved in very different directions to do what our passions guide us towards. You think it's in any kind of precedent arena? See documentaries of campaigns, say, in California, uh, maybe in a gubernatorial race or a hot prop race or something? You know, I don't, I don't know. I mean, there's, there's always a, a push for content. Um, again, that's one of the things that I've, I've kind of learned in the story making process. And as campaigns move towards video, I think that's one of the lessons yeah. of the Lincoln Project is California is still so ridiculously focused on direct mail. Sorry to all of you consultants out there. And those of you that are making you know, millions, good, good for you on direct mail or, or making money on broadcast TV ads. What a colossal waste. I mean, it's just it's and I say that as, as a campaign professional who, who who's in that business, too, and, and and makes a good living off of it. It's just genuinely the least efficient way to communicate with people in real time. And I think that say what you will about the Lincoln Project and what our goals and our aims were, the tactics that we use really changed the modern campaign. We, we changed the game of how campaigns are done. I don't think most campaigns will catch up for a few election cycles. That's the way change usually occurs in industry. But there's no doubt that that's where it's going. Uh, there's just no doubt, and especially if you want to drive um, change and not and work outside of a calcified system. Um, the only way to do it is the way we we did it. Um, and and I, I think, like I said, I think camp. We get, we, I get calls all the all the time, every all the time, but people saying, "Hey, we want to do, you know, we want to replicate this." Um, so so you know the sentiment is there. 
Um, but it's going to take, I think, consultants to figure out that um, you know, direct mail is going to die slowly. It's already a waste of money. <laughs> Sorry, guys. Direct mail is a waste of money. So, so is broadcast. It's just a waste. There's just a lot of people vested in the current system, and that will continue until somebody comes in and revolutionizes it and does it differently and changes it. And then everybody will jump uh, on board with that. And I think that's what the Lincoln Project proved is it's, po it's not only possible, it's better to do it that way. It's more efficient. I've got a question that just popped up. We've only got a couple minutes left. But the question was, there was a lot of criticism about President of the United States forgiving student loan debt. Uh, did, it, did this drive turn out? Did it have the strength to bring out um, the youth vote? That's been pretty elusive, really. Right? No, let me be really clear. The answer is no, and let me tell you why. Uh, what changed? What changed the whole political calculus was Dobbs. Was was the Roe decision? From that moment on, you could see something entirely different. It just it was an earthquake. Um, prior to Dobbs, prior to the Dobbs decision, we're talking about a mid-May June timeframe. Is you know the weakest the weakest demographic for Joe Biden and the Democrats were eighteen to twenty-five year old voters. They didn't, they weren't um, ambivalent. They did not like Joe Biden. They did not like it. Like the only demographic group worse than 18 to 25 year olds for Joe Biden was Republicans. Okay. And so there's a whole mythology and narrative that parties that do well and both sides do this. You know, the Democrats are going to be beating their chest saying, see, this was about build back better or infrastructure or, or whatever government program we were pushing. It's not. It's nonsense. It's not the way voters decide things, and it's why both parties overreach. People vote against things, and that's what people were voting against. What, what galvanized young voters? By the way, there's only a 27 percent national turnout of young voters. So let's let's not be let's not get too crazy about it. It was not a huge youth turnout. It broke decidedly Democrat, or as a better way to put it, is decidedly anti-Republican. It was only 27 percent. So I mean, let's let's let's. Let's let the dust settle. And as the data comes in, we're going to get a clear understanding of what did and did not happen. But one of the things, this, this, this college loan thing, it's, it's just, it's bullshit. Well, we could start a war and bring back the draft and that for, that'll go right. up dramatically. Like right. before. Let me ask you, I guess one last question, the, uh, the uh, affinity for Trump nationwide in certain States, certain areas, uh, it gets really strong, is really strong. 140, as I understand it, 140 seats in Congress now have been taken by election deniers. They very vehemently support Trump. We haven't seen it to that extent in California. But, you know, we're the largest state, biggest electorate. Is this something that California can expect to see more of, or is it not get to our shores, so to speak? No, I, I think it's very much in our shores. I think it's, 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 in, our, it's in the Assembly Republican Caucus. It's in, it's, you know, I mean, Shannon Grove was, was, was tweeting stuff that was pro-insurrection on January 6th. I mean, it's, it's, it, I mean, I don't know if she's still around or not, but you can't tell me whether it's coming. It's in, it's in the house. Like it's in the problem. And, and the overwhelming majority of, of, of Republican voters are not dissimilar from the average rank and file Republican voters everywhere else in the country. So it's not like they're because we're California that, that Republicans are more moderate here. In many ways, they're more extreme. The moderates, you know, the, the moderates have essentially left. They, they, they gave up, you know, 10, 15, 
you know, 20 years ago and said, this is, I don't get this anymore. All that's left is the most extreme voices. So that, that, and that's the real problem for the Republican Party is the very people that can drive the change have already left. It's, it's going to be pure desperation. And that was really kind of the hope for the Lonnie Chen's or the Nathan Hawkman's is, you know, they kind of quietly said, well, I'm anti-Trump and I never voted for him or I'm pro-choice. If they had said that with a, a loud, courageous, bold voice, they would have done a lot better on Tuesday night than they did. But, you know, they, they should have done that from the very get-go when Donald Trump came down the, the golden escalator. And of course they didn't because. So if you were officially advising the party like you used to do, uh, what would you tell the party right now? Here's what you've got to do in order to bring people together or get more votes. You have to define what you are against in modern uh, American political discourse before people will listen to what you are for. And until you disavow what two thirds of Californians vehemently, emotionally, viscerally reject, there's nothing you can do. Until you can stand against the rising xenophobia, the racism, the fascism, the Trumpism, the, the authoritarianism, the support for Russia, until you vocally decry that and announce that you are opposed to it, no one's gonna to listen to anything else. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mike Madrid, thank you so much for joining us. I enjoyed it, as always, when I chat with you. Great to be with um, you guys. Thanks for the invitation, guys. Yeah, holy more than welcome. And this is John Howard saying thank you for participating, for people who looked in. And The Capital Weekly Podcast is produced by Tim Foster for Open California. If you enjoyed today's episode, we hope you'll go onto iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a positive review. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next week.